Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling. Today, I'm glad to be joined by Owen Strand, professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Uh, Owen is a prolific author. His most recent book is The Colson Way, and Owen and I are going to discuss the life and the legacy of Chuck Colson, former aide to President Richard Nixon, convicted felon, and to all of us, a powerful example of redemption and grace. Chuck Colson really became one of the 20th century and the early 21st century's most important intellectuals, really helping Christians think through how to do cultural engagement well. He was just a real leader on all these issues, an advisor to presidents, and someone that we really admire. We're going to talk with Owen about how we can learn the lessons of Colson's model of cultural engagement. Before we begin our conversation with Owen, I want to tell you about an important new resource at the ERLC we're calling The Weekly. This is a weekly email newsletter written by our staff that curates the most important news stories, offers some brief explanation. Most of us are incredibly busy with our families and our jobs. We just don't have time to digest the news from a distinctly Christian worldview. The Weekly is a very quick but informative read might take you 10 or 15 minutes to scan through it. And then if you want to deep dive on some of the stories, you can click on the links that we will have for you. To sign up for this, visit my website, danieldarling.com. Click on the podcast page and we'll have all the links and information right there to sign up. But for now, let's join Owen Strand. Owen Strand, thank you for joining us here on the Way Home Podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. It's great to be here. So I've got in my hands your new book, The Colson Way, talking about the leadership of Chuck Colson. So let me ask you just to, to start with, what was kind of the inspiration behind this book? You've studied this era, evangelicalism, Carl Henry and, and others. What was it that inspired you to write this book? The neo-evangelicals um, sound like something dreamed up by the creators of the Matrix, uh, fused with some sort of weird uh, theological school. But in reality, the neo-evangelicals are just post-war Christians like Billy Graham, Carl Henry, mm-hmm. Harold Ottengay, those kind of names. Um, Chuck Colson wasn't one of the neo-evangelicals, but he was buddies with a lot of them. And so I studied that crowd in my Ph.D., and that gave me a desire to know a lot more about many of those post-World War II figures. After I did my dissertation, I realized uh, uh, I still had a lot of interest in the post-war generation, and that Colson wasn't super well-known among, and everybody get ready for this term, millennials. Um, In other words, a lot of people knew Colson's name, uh, to be sure, but they didn't know a lot about what he did, what he stood for. And when he died in 2012, uh, that just became really apparent. People of his generation or maybe our parents' generation, you know, celebrated him and had read his biography, his autobiography, Born Again, that sort of thing, knew about prison fellowship. But a lot of younger Christians didn't. And there's a real hunger among younger Christians to both combine a passion for the gospel uh, with, uh, you know, an interest in the world. Social justice is one of the terms that's often used. Chuck Colson did that before it was cool. Chuck Colson was in uh, with that whole movement. He he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere he could, including many prisons where it was pretty tough to get in. But he also was working uh, to, to um, 
better the situation of those prisoners and, and to rehabilitate them. And, and so Prison Fellowship, the organization he led, uh, was all about uh, social justice issues from the prison standpoint. So I just thought, this is a guy who younger Christians need to know, and uh, and in particular for today, because the, the public square is so hot, it, uh, the Christian worldview is so contested, and Colson was such a good spokesman for the Christian worldview. So for all those reasons, uh, I was really interested in studying him and writing about him. Yeah, you know, what I've read of, of Colson, so I'm 37, you know, much of my high school and college life was, you know, Colson was a major cultural figure. I remember just listening to Breakpoint and reading his books. And the thing that strikes me about him, I've read a couple, I think I read Jonathan Aitken's biography and I've read some others. He kind of espoused a joyful cultural engagement and a sort of robust engagement, right? Before that was even popular among conservatives, like it is more today. Is that is that right? Is that correct? I think that's, I think that's uh, dead center of the bullseye. I mean, he, he was a joyful man. He was converted in the mid-70s uh, after chasing power and fame and money yeah. uh, for several decades and doing so very successfully. I mean, Chuck Colson really was a classic American success story. He, he was uh, born in Boston. He turned down Harvard to go to Brown. He became uh, a wealthy lawyer he worked in the in the White House for Richard Nixon and helped uh, usher Nixon into the White House. Uh, so he he knew the heights of power, fame, celebrity, money. But then it all came crashing down for him when he was implicated in a kind of minor way in Watergate. Mm-hmm. And um, so he he after that tasted the joy of walking with Christ, and that really infused um, his public engagement. So Colson was very convictional. Um, he, he stood uh, his ground when it came to the Christian worldview, but he did so with uh, the joy of his conversion. It seemed like, uh, from what I can tell from studying him and writing about him in the Colson way, it seemed like uh, that was always before him uh, in his career. And so I think you're dead on, and I think we need that kind of spirit today. It seems like, too, you know, his thinking and Carl Henry's thinking, it's a, for lack of a better term, it's a conservatism that seems portable from one generation to the next. So, you know, if you he he was talking about things that evangelicals are now starting to talk about like criminal justice reform mm-hmm. and, you know, humane treatment of animals and all those things that um, conservatives are now starting to include in the portfolio of causes. Before those were sort of fashionable on the right. And so and and, and the other thing that strikes me too is just his how how the, sort of the gospel infused his cultural engagement. It wasn't just left versus right, this election versus next election, right? So maybe explain how his conservatism is really something we need today, right? Yeah, he loved the Christian worldview. Um, That was really his organizing concept as a thinker uh, and an activist and a Christian leader. So he approached uh, everything he did from that perspective. How did Christ factor into this specific area that was in front of him. Um, and that that uh, really set him apart from his day, because there was a lot of attention in the uh, 1980s, for example, on the religious right, and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of just figuring out the, the position that conservative Christians were going to hold, and then very much standing for that. Colson had a lot of common cause with the religious right, and that's why he sometimes lumped in with them. Mm-hmm. But in point of fact, he wasn't really a member of the religious right. He He... I mean, for example, what you just talked about, his interest in criminal justice reform, being a former prisoner himself mm-hmm. in Alabama, 
he knew how many people advocated lock them up and throw them away, uh, throw the key away, you know, as basically the prevailing philosophy of criminal justice. Well, if that had been true for Chuck Colson, if he had been locked up and people had thrown away the key, he wouldn't have gotten out. Uh, he wouldn't have been able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with yeah. uh, the many millions of people he was able to share it with. So he saw that that was a bankrupt philosophy, at least for some prisoners, that is. And so uh, that freed him up to approach the issue from a slightly different perspective than those who had not been in prison uh, would have had. Uh, that's an example of how Colson uh, did adhere to many of the same beliefs that, uh, you know, your average conservative evangelical would, but he did so in a, in a unique way and with a, a slightly different twist that I think makes him really compelling uh, to, to read about and study. Yeah, when, when, when we look at the, the landscape today, um, contrary to the sort of narrative, you know, when I look around, I see young, robust, uh, conservative evangelicals. Uh, their their cultural engagement is is in most parts you know joyful, Kyperian, and so we're looking not just at winning the next election or sort of this legislation and that legislation, which is all very important for us to be involved in, but looking at even sort of like building institutions and what's good for human flourishing and thinking of the common good. Um, th- those, in many ways, are the fruits of some of what Colson was teaching, right? That's exactly right. Colson was deeply impacted by figures like Kuyper, Wilberforce, mm-hmm. Henry. Uh, these were figures who had a very serious uh, theological perspective. Uh, they, they were theologians, um, basically. Wilberforce was more of an activist, but the, the other two were. And so, uh, but they were very much activists as well. All three of those folks were activists. Mm-hmm. And that had a deep impact on Colson. He wasn't simply uh, a champion of different positions. Colson was, was approaching all of his cultural engagement from the perspective that Jesus was Lord and that the gospel was the true solution uh, for what ails humanity. That didn't mean, of course, that you just shout gospel and run away, you know, when there's a, prob- right. a problem in the, in the public square. That's, that was not his engagement, you know. So, for example, prison fellowship had sophisticated ideas uh, to offer in the the realm of of prison reform, mm-hmm. uh, and that's you know, and then that was true with other issues as well that Colson championed. But it does mean that there was something rich uh, and deep when it came to Colson's engagement. He was playing the long game, and Dan, um, this is very much what I'm after in the Colson way in this book we're talking about. I I want younger Christians to see that we may t- take some lumps these days. We may lose some battles in in um, in years ahead. But if we will build sturdy uh, structures in the public square, so to speak, you know, sturdy yes. edifices of thought, <laughs> if you will, yes. then um, when, when those battles are over and uh, when uh, the tide turns, perhaps, in certain sectors of, of the culture, we may see that, you know, we've built something lasting that people are going to be drawn to. That was what Colson was after, and um, I think we need to play the long game as well and build deeply with rich theological roots and foundations. I want to talk about kind of your personal narrative, too. How, how did you come to just devote your life to this kind of study, to studying figures like Chuck Colson and Carl Henry, Jonathan Edwards you've done great work on. Uh, you've led Thank centers you. at a couple of institutions on Carl Henry and Jonathan Edwards and these types. What is kind of your journey into that kind of a life? 
Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to grab the coattails of these great figures. Um, that's you know I'm hanging on to the bumper uh, mm. driven uh, by the car driven by Jonathan Edwards and Carl Henry. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not a it's not a bad place to be, frankly. Yeah. You know, I just I I love biography and history, and I've always been moved, as many people are, by heroes and leaders uh, of the faith. And so these guys provide me and many others with models. Jonathan Edwards was not a perfect man, for example, but he, I think, is in some sense a model pastor, a pastor theologian. And Chuck Colson was not a, a perfect man. You know, he, there are issues that I raise in the Colson way that, mm-hmm. you know, I disagree with him on. Um, but nonetheless, he was out there. He's a model. Anytime someone has skin in the game, okay, anytime someone doesn't just pontificate on their blog or Twitter feed, but they actually invest and put skin in the game and work towards the common good, especially for the good of the kingdom, we should take special notice of what they do, even if, Dan, even if we disagree with them. Uh, so, so the person out there who tries to actually build something and do something lasting and gets up in the morning and sacrifices and you know, puts in the hard work, that person, I, I always tell my students when I'm teaching, those people, regardless of whether you end up sharing their views, and some of them definitely are not worth sharing, those people deserve consideration. Um, so, all this to say, guys like Henry, Colson, Edwards, these guys did put skin in the game. They did uh, bleed for their causes. They did bleed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that makes me want to study them, learn from them, and, uh, and enjoy their legacy. I want to talk about your writing process. So you've got several books coming out this year, like four or five books coming out. So have you always been a writer just growing up, uh, writing and studying? Is it something that came to you late in life? What's kind of, uh, what was your journey that way? Yeah, this is untreated ADHD, by the way. Um, it's just, it's just channeled into writing. (laughs) So there you go. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I've always been, um, a little bit intense when it comes to writing and I'm not exactly sure why. But uh, I remember growing up, I went to this writing seminar at the University of Maine in Machias, in Machias, Maine, on the coast of Maine. Mm. And um, the editor of the local community paper, the Down East Coastal Press, encouraged me, based on what I'd shared in this writing seminar, to submit some stuff. So I ended up, when I was like 14, writing semi-regular opinion pieces in the Down East Coastal Press, which, uh, I don't know, had a circulation of five to 10,000 or something like that at the time. God has has seemed to um, push me into writing uh, throughout my life and from a young age. Um, and so, uh, you know, I got into blogging like a lot of other people did about 12 years ago, and, uh, and then, you know, writing books uh, more recently in the last five years. So writing has just, writing is very much a way of life for me. It's not something that um, I, I have to, like, work to want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have to work for good prose, like anybody, yeah. but I love writing it's like breathing for me, and the Lord has seemed to want me to do it, at least thus far so in, in let, my life. Let's talk about your writing process. Are you? I'm more of a deadline guy, so give me a deadline. I'll meet it. I can write pretty fast. Other people, I have friends that are kind of. I get up, you know, they, they get up at like five in the morning. They crank out five thousand words a day. Where do you fall in that? What's your style? Yeah, I'm kind of a hybrid of that. Um, I, I, uh, when I'm cooking, I can get a fair amount of words. I was going to say on the page, but I guess that's, that's anachronistic on the virtual page. Yeah. So I, I just tend to write kind of in torrents 
and um, I, I can't just sit there with the cursor blinking at me. I can't be tortured, you know, over every word I'm reading this new book on the Inklings, um, and it's fascinating to compare C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, both epic writers, you know, but uh, very, very different. Lewis would sit down at the typewriter and pound it out, and first draft would be pretty clean, and he'd send it off to the Guardian or whatever. Tolkien, you know, did uh, uh, obsess over every word. Um, so both of them, masterpiece writers, right? Um, I'm more the Lewis type. I read about Bill Buckley a few years ago, and he'd be on his yacht, you know, sailing somewhere uh, in Europe or whatever, and realize that he had a deadline and sit down and crank out 1,500 words in an hour. I'm not quite at that rate, but that's that's kind of my style. Um, and, and when I'm doing that, I experience what uh, one psychologist has called flow, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I don't experience flow when I'm um, doing calculus, not that I do it anymore. I don't experience flow when I have to repair something in the house. Um, yes. I do experience it when I'm writing a good bit. Yeah, so, and yeah. If, I don't know if you're like me, but I... You know, been writing most of my life, and so it's it's kind of one of the. I was talking to my wife the other day about this. It's one of those things that you just can't escape it. So I'm sitting listening to a sermon, and I just get ideas, you know, and I've got to write down this idea. You just constantly have news breaks or something. You're just you're always thinking of, you know, you're thinking of writing. You know, if I'm angry, if I'm happy, is that <laughs> is that how you are? I mean, I just think I, I'm going to write this. You know, is that is that kind of how you are? Yeah. I um I can't help it. I yeah. I it's a kind of mania. Writing is a kind of mania for me. I I didn't ask that it would be, yeah. but um it's always been that way. I've always wanted to express myself through writing. I, I can remember in sixth grade learning about the Trail of Tears in history class and just needing to write something about yeah. you know the awfulness of the Trail of Tears. I mean, so it's very much a way I I, I process. Um, my wife can sit down at the piano and and um play kind of a new song. She can create a song, which is uh, often a reflection of what she's feeling. I can't do that at all. Um, But thankfully, I can sit down at a computer and and write. And it's often, you know, a working out of what I'm feeling and thinking. So, yeah. We've got a couple more minutes here. I want to ask you, what kind of advice do you give to young, aspiring writers that that really feel a call to write, a call to, to publish their words? I would say two things. Um, number one, I tell this to students I teach at the seminary and college level. Um, get all your research out of the way first. Get all the quotes you can uh, from the resources you need to draw from and get them in a Word document and just pull from the Word document. Organize it uh, and, and then, again, just pull, pull from it into the body of what you're writing. And Most people have like 25 books open in front of them on a desk. And, you know, they're sort of tinkering through it and uh, looking at a book here and a sentence there. And, oh, where, where was that quote? I can't remember it. Then, you know, something pops up on Twitter and they get distracted. No. Have a 10-page Word document that you pull all your quotes from or whatever, you know, your material, your flow of thought, whatever it may be, and just write from that. And that has, that has saved me a ton of time. That's how I got through a seminary degree and a Ph.D. in relatively short order. And I would commend that to others. I also would say very much along those lines, I think that there is a little bit of a culture of obsessiveness that has developed around writing, where we all celebrate how tortured we are as writers, and we all hit periods of uh, infertility when it comes to writing. You know, we, we all come to those days when it's just super hard to get the words out. Yeah. I hit them as much as anyone else. 
But I would just say, I think there's been a little bit of fetishization of the, the difficulty of writing. And, and you can almost feel like you're not a true writer unless you're some sort of 21st century version of a 19th century Russian novelist in, you know, in, a, in a camp somewhere, um, <laughs> you know, under penalty of punishment if you don't write. So I would just say, develop your natural voice and then write. And um, take the constraints off, take the emergency break off. I think a lot of people write with the emergency break on mm, and punch it out. Word. You can always go back and edit. You must go back and edit anyway. So, um, yeah. yeah, take the take the break off and, and hit fifth gear as, as much as you can. You know, one of the things I've I learned, you know, I've been writing for about, ah, about 15 years or so, and I agree so much with Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule that mm-hmm. you just got to crank stuff out. You got to start writing. Your first stuff's not going to be any good. It's going to be okay. You just keep it, keep doing it, and then getting those muscles flowing. And then you just wake up one day, and you're you're writing some pretty good stuff, decent body of work, and people are starting to ask you to write for them. That is absolutely right. Um, I think uh, writing is like anything. You, know, you don't expect after you've been a carpenter for 10,000 hours to be like, okay, I know I've done this before, but how exactly right. do I pound the nail in here? You do it without thinking, right? If you're right. a short-order cook... You can pound out 75 meals in half an hour, you know, when it gets busy. Do that with writing. Recognize that, yes, it's going to take you several years to become an excellent short-order cook, so to speak. But once you do, you really shouldn't be asking yourself and obsessing over how to scramble the eggs. You know, you you can get the first paragraph out. You can get your main points out and then go back and, and edit them. And, and just don't buy into this culture of tortured obsessiveness. Just write. Just write. One last, last question. As we think through where the church is in the culture and uh, a lot of hand-wringing on both sides about uh, evangelicalism and, you know, it's no secret that to be faithful witness is to be increasingly out of step with where the culture is. You seem still very hopeful about what what God is doing in our day. Why is that? I believe that God delights to work in the midst of darkness. You know, if I'm if I'm just working through biblical categories, I see examples like Joseph, um, Ruth, Esther, Daniel, and then obviously Jesus, and then Jesus' apostles. All of those people have the odds against them. All of those biblical figures have the wind in their face. And yet God uses even evil, even tremendous evil, in every case, by the way, that I just mentioned, and those, that's just a quick sampling, he uses even tremendous evil for good. And so I see our culture very much declining. Um, I, I see it in free fall. Um, it's a rough place to raise children. Um, I believe that we are probably going to face serious opposition in days ahead. I know that sometimes people want to poke fun at the, the persecution complex of Christians. You know, there may be a little bit of truth there, but on the other hand, I think things are really changing in this society. But I think we're just moving more and more into biblical territory, if that's the case. And um, this is where... We have a chance to shine. This is uh, where Jesus seemed to like to be. Jesus was not a little uh, passive wallflower. Jesus had fire in his eyes, and he plunged into the heart of the Roman Empire. You know, he wasn't somewhere uh, far-flung from the centers of power and from, you know, the the darkest reaches of the pagan heart. He, He was in the middle of the Roman Empire, and he went there on purpose, and his apostles continued to minister there. We need to be everywhere. Churches need to be all over the place. And the whole world lies under the threat of darkness. But I see in Jesus, again, fire in his eyes, a spirit that is even even joyful about plunging into the darkness, because 
you know, even the worst things before us, uh, even even the, the most dangerous threats to the Christian faith, you know, secularism, um, sexualized postmodernism, a- atheism, Islam, these sorts of things, I, I would encourage us to see these not as problems that are ruining our way of life, so to speak, even though they may be, but I would encourage us to see them fundamentally as gospel opportunities. Um, the darkness... The darkness closes in, but um, these are opportunities uh, for us, not not things that are going to shut us down or overwhelm Christianity, you know, as if they're taking God by surprise. God is not taken by surprise. That's such a great word. Owen Strand, thank you so much for joining us. I encourage everyone to get your book, The Colson Way, learn more about the life and the leadership of Chuck Colson, someone we should all study. Thank you for being here on the podcast, and uh, we'll we'll catch up again next time. It's very kind of you to have me, Dan. Thanks a lot for the great conversation. Well, I want to thank Owen Strand for that terrific conversation about Chuck Colson and his life and legacy and what we can learn for cultural engagement today in the 21st century. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by emailing us? The email is wayhome at erlc.com, wayhome at erlc.com. Or if you uh, would like to write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn, wherever you listen to the podcast. If you're interested in our other conversations with Christian leaders like Oz Guinness, J.D. Greer, David Platt, Molly Hemingway, Matt Chandler, Jim Daly, and many others, check out the podcast page on DanielDarling.com, and we have all those podcasts there for you. Also, don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Weekly, by visiting my website, DanielDarling.com, and clicking on the podcast page there. But for now, thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast.